Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. Welcome to E is for Evangelism. If you could see my setting right now, you'd notice how very different it looks from what it did just a week ago. The bookshelves are empty, and instead all of those books are in boxes piled around me. The walls are bare, because a week from today we'll load a Penske truck, a rental truck. And a week from tomorrow we'll begin a three-day drive to the northwest valley, uh, part of the valley known as Phoenix, where we'll uh, relocate, Lord willing. Um, Kids and grandkids live there, and that has become the priority. But in the midst of all the things that have to be done to do a move like this, and man, is there a lot of work, I'm pretty exercised about today's episode, E is for Evangelism. If you read the description, the episode description, on the the title page, I guess you'd call it, uh, you'll notice that I said, you probably have this all wrong. But again, it is not your fault. Uh, One of my um, adages as I've grown older is that pastors overestimate what their people know and underestimate what they're capable of learning. I'm not sure if this applies here or not, but if I'm correct, if you misunderstand what the Bible says about evangelism and about the gift of evangelism, it's not your fault. Frankly, you've been been fed some really bad teaching. It is so common that it is just accepted without critical thinking skills. We aim to fix that in this two-part episode. If that's not an ambitious goal, I don't know what is, but like I said, I'm exercised and eager to get to it. In order to sort out this hot mess of bad theology, we need to start with a couple of um, words, a couple of Greek words very closely related, so that when we move to the New Testament, we'll understand better what is being said there. When you hear the word angel, what do you think of? Do you visualize one of the one of the uh, characterizations, one of the drawings of the angels. My favorite is that little cherub, uh, the picture, the painting of uh, pop art, basically, of the cherub with his hands laying on a table and his chin resting on his hands, looking at you ever so sweetly. What silly nonsense. The Greek word for uh, angel is angelos, which literally means messenger. Um, 179 times in the New Testament, Angelos is translated as angel. However, seven times it is translated as messenger because that is the root meaning of the word. The angels of the Lord are described as primarily messengers, those who go out to do the Lord's work and uh, in, in, very often communicate with us on his behalf. I should say communicated, past tense, that doesn't happen now. So 179 times, by far the majority, the word angelos is translated as messenger, but seven times it gets that root translation. Uh, John the Baptist is called the angelos of God, the messenger of God. Paul says in Corinthians that he has a physical affliction, which he describes as a messenger of Satan, an angelos. Isn't that an ironic use of the word? So let's start by understanding that the word angelos means messenger. And it is normally used of the angels, but in, in seven cases, seven examples, 
It's used just of someone who carries a message. And in the case of Paul, it was a messenger from Satan in the form of a fairly serious physical affliction. Now let's add a prefix to the beginning of that word, the prefix E-U, you, and turn it into euangelion. The prefix you means good. So for example, we use the word euphemism, which is a good way of saying something that is otherwise kind of nasty. A bad word, we come up with a euphemism for it, something that sounds better, something that sounds good. Euangelion means a message which is good. So, so Satan's message to uh, Paul in the form of that physical affliction was not a euangelion. Euangelion, a good message, is used 77 times in the New Testament and is normally translated as gospel. There is an old English word that also means a good word, a good message. Euangelion is normally translated as the gospel. It is a good message. Now we're going to change the ending and turn it from a noun into a verb. Euangelizo, that idzo ending is the normal um, base verb ending, means to proclaim good news. Fifty-five times in the New Testament, it is used about preaching the gospel. It describes someone who goes out and proclaims the good news. You see, you take the noun, good news, turn it into a verb to proclaim the good news. Not just to proclaim any old piece, but to proclaim specifically good news. So we went from angelos to euangelion, good news, to euangelizo, to proclaim good news. Now we're going to go turn back on ourselves and turn it back into a noun, but watch what happens. Instead of the verb euangelizo, to proclaim good news, we're going to go to euangelistes, and that, turn, that ending turns it back into a noun, and in this case, turns it into the noun evangelist a person who proclaims the good news. This noun form, euangelistes, is actually quite rare. It's only used three times in the New Testament. We're going to take a closer look at it in a, in a few minutes. But the three times where the uh, person who proclaims the good news, the noun, euangelistes, is used, the three times are once in Acts 21.8, they stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. You see, it's a reference to a person. The house of Philip the Evangelist. In Ephesians 4.11, boy, we're going to come back to that. That's an important passage. He, uh, he talks, Paul talks about what God has given the church, the evangelists, plural in that case. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, Paul tells Timothy, to do the work of an evangelist. Again, a reference to a person who proclaims good news. Can you think of someone that you could easily describe as an evangelist? It seems to me that uh, the best example of that is probably Billy Graham. Uh, how long has Billy Graham been with the Lord? It's, it's been, what, maybe five years, eight years? I've lost track. It seems like he was around forever. I don't remember a time when Billy Graham wasn't holding evangelistic crusades. Listen to that and think about the Greek word. Um, Billy Graham, the euangelista, the evangelist, 
proclaimed the good news, euangelizo, proclaimed the good news of the gospel, euangelion. You see how all of those words are related, and they come into English in various forms. Euangelion, the message, euangelizo, to proclaim that message, to proclaim the gospel, and then euangelistes, the person who proclaims that gospel. Now, here we're going to start digging ourselves out of that mess I referred to. Nowhere, listen to me, nowhere in the Bible is evangelism described as a spiritual gift. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about the gift of evangelism. Does that surprise you? Because the gift of evangelism has just become so much a part of our normal thinking about how the body of Christ is structured that, again, nobody, nobody I know anyhow, has done the work to look it up and find out that nowhere in the New Testament does it talk about the gift of evangelism. Now, listen, we're doing E is for evangelism, but I've got to take a little bit of a detour here and talk about spiritual gifts because that is really what lies behind our misunderstanding of evangelism. I hate spiritual gift inventories. If you've ever taken a spiritual gift test, and in, they call, they're called inventories, to discover what your spiritual gift is, get down on your knees and repent of that effort. It, it don't really, because again, somebody handed it to you and said, do this, and you were being a good doobie, and you did what you were told, and you assumed that that person up there who was official and a teacher and had some authority or or yeah, pretext of authority, told you that this is what the Bible says. It says we all have spiritual gifts. It does. And that you should discover your spiritual gift. The Bible never says to do that. And then you should practice that spiritual gift. You should. Here's the problem. The way those spiritual inventories work is it takes the three places in the New Testament where there are lists of spiritual gifts. Romans 12... 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4 collates those three lists and comes up with a master list. Then it takes you through that master list and asks you a series of questions, these, these spiritual gift inventories do, until you narrow down to the one spiritual or maybe two spiritual gifts that you have. That is just so bogus. It Frankly, it makes me angry. I hear someone talking about, I took a spiritual gift inventory and learned that my spiritual gift is, and I know that they did that out of a genuine desire to serve God. On the one hand, I want to grab them by the lapels and give them a good shake. And in the, on the other hand, I want to find the person that taught that to them and give them a, a beating about the head and shoulders for Pete's sake. Think about this, folks. Go read each of those three lists of spiritual gifts. And what you'll find is that, that the writer, in two cases Paul and in one case Peter, is talking about something else. Typically, they are talking about how we relate to each other within the body of Christ. And they are making the point that all of us are to contribute. True point. They illustrate that by saying, if you have the gift of giving then this is how you should do it. If you have the gift of hospitality, this is how you should do it. And in each of those cases, the focus is not on the gift, but on serving the body of Christ, on serving one another. 
which is to say none of those lists or a collation of all three of those lists is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. To reduce it down to, and here they've got a problem, the people who do this have a problem because, and and they'll readily admit, we're not exactly sure how this works because this list here in, in passage number one and in passage number three, we think these two refer to the same gift, but they use different, slightly different wordings, and so it may in fact be two spiritual gifts. That's why in some cases we get 12 or 10 or 13 spiritual gifts, because nobody's exactly sure how to collate these lists. That ought to be clue number one, that that is never what the Bible intended. What's being done in those three passages is that the writer, again, in two cases Paul and in one case Peter, are citing examples of spiritual gifts, and they pull out of a box of, we don't know what size, the gift of hospitality, or the gift of serving, or the gift of teaching, And they use that as an example. That's all. It is an example meant to serve a a larger point. We are to minister to one another in the body of Christ. Everybody is to serve. If they meant to give an exhaustive list, it would have said, here are the spiritual gifts. One, two, three, four, five, six. That's not what happens. The problem with a spiritual gift inventory is it starts with a false premise that you are to identify your spiritual gift by identifying one on this list of what are, in fact, examples given into the New Testament. I challenge you to go read those three lists. Again, uh, Romans Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter 4. And understand, as you read with an open mind, you'll see very clearly that the author is just pulling examples to illustrate a larger point. How many spiritual gifts are there? I don't have a clue. None of us do. There might be 144. There might be an unlimited number because there may be shades of. Let's start by getting rid of that nonsense that you choose, you identify yours from a list of 12. That leads us to all kinds of mistakes. And one of them is assuming that there is a gift of evangelism. Where did that come from? That comes from Ephesians chapter 4, and you'll notice that I didn't list that as one of the locations of a spiritual, uh, as uh, a list of spiritual gifts. If you've got your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, but don't worry about it. I'm going to read it to you. If you don't have a Bible at hand, I'm going to read it to you. Um, I'm going to start at verse 11. And he, that is Christ, gave to the church, it doesn't say that, but that's the context. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, permit me to go into some detail here. Notice the definite article. He gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. These are individuals. They are not spiritual gifts. There are three passages that give uh, lists of spiritual gifts that, again, I'm going to drill this, that are examples from a much larger list. This is not one of those passages. This passage identifies what we have come to call offices within the church. 
He gave the apostles. They hold an office in the church. They held, more accurately, um, with the completion of Scripture, the the office of apostle passed out of uh, service by God. He gave the prophets. We don't have prophets anymore because the Bible is completed and gives us, uh, 2 Timothy says, gives us everything we need. So the office of apostle has passed from the scene. He gave the evangelists. Look at that. In the first century church, there was the office of evangelist. We'll come back to that. And then finally, the shepherds and teachers. What's notable there is the definite article is missing in front of teachers. It's not the shepherds and the teachers. It is the shepherds and teachers. That is an interesting uh, construction that is unique to Greek. When you take two nouns and use one article to describe both, it is called the Granville-Sharp rule because those are the Greek scholars who identified it. The Granville Sharp says, uh, Granville Sharp rule says, when you have two nouns with one definite article, those two nouns are in effect hyphenated. That's what the single article does, is it hyphenates those. So it is not the, the shepherds and the teachers. It is the shepherds slash teachers. It is the same office, and that office has two primary functions, to, to shepherd the flock and to teach the flock. So again, uh, allow me to belabor the point. Um, He gave the office of apostle, the office of prophet, the office of evangelist, and the office of shepherd and teacher. Don't, Don't get drawn in by anyone who says that Ephesians chapter 4 lists spiritual gifts. When you read it attentively, especially when you pay attention to those definite articles, you can see that those are not spiritual gifts. Those are offices in the first century church, two of which have ceased to exist because scriptures are complete and we don't need apostles and we don't need prophets anymore. What we're left with then are evangelists, the office of evangelist and the office of pastor, teacher, pastor hyphen, pastor slash teacher. One office with two important functions. Am I saying there's no gift of evangelism? I certainly am not saying that. We cannot say that there is no gift of evangelism because we realize that the three places where there is a list, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter 4, which is a very short one. I think there's only two or three mentioned there. Um, is not an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts. So yes, there might be a gift of evangelism. Can't say that there is, can't say that there isn't. I can say that I have known people for whom evangelism just seems to come so natural that it is part of their DNA. Uh, I I say this facetiously, you understand, sarcastically. Um, I don't like these people at all because, frankly, I'm jealous of them. They meet people that they've never talked to before and just naturally engage them at a deeper level. They are within three sentences, not talking about the weather or whatever. They are talking about significant truths, including evangelism. And and by all appearances, they seem to lead people to the Lord at an astonishing rate. And I, like I said, I'm jealous of them. I don't like them at all because because I feel jealous of them, and I wish I could do that. So I'm inclined to think that there is a gift of evangelism, 
But I can't say that there is or isn't because nowhere in the Bible does it talk about a gift of evangelism. That doesn't mean necessarily anything one way or another. Uh, Yeah, so there we have it. Does that rock your world? That may be something that is so different from what you've heard all your life that it will take you some time. Maybe you need to go back to the beginning and listen to the first 20 minutes of this all over again until it is drilled into your head. Next time you hear someone talk about the gift of evangelism, shake your head. Maybe they'll see it and come up to you afterwards and ask, why did you shake your head when I said that? And you can explain that to them. One more thing that might be worth noting before we move on in in part two is not only can we not say that there is or is not a gift of evangelism, but we can say, isn't it interesting that the office of evangelist is, is basically gone from the local church? We understand why the gift of prophet and apostle are gone. Those were used before the completion of Scripture when the church needed those people who received prophetic messages directly from God and could communicate with God's people. But again, with the completion of Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, instruction, reproof, and correction, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All we need is found in Scripture, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hence, we no longer need apostles and prophets. However, why did we discard the office of evangelist? Why did we discard the office within the local church of a person who is who bears responsibility for spreading the good news of the gospel? And they may do that uh, themselves, or I think more likely, uh, they equip the body of Christ to do that. Their focus is on evangelism. They are evangelists. And they themselves, and then through their their work teaching and preparing and equipping, they teach the rest of us to do the work of evangelism. Interesting in this context is that Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Um, Timothy is a pastor-teacher, right? He is the pastor, what we would call the pastor of a flock. Uh, seems to be the church in Ephesus. He therefore shepherds that flock and teaches that flock. But Paul tells him, you're also to do the work of an evangelist. Why does Paul say that? Maybe it's because that church in Ephesus was small enough or because it wasn't far enough along in its development. I don't know. Or, or maybe the church in Ephesus had an evangelist But Paul tells Timothy, listen, buddy, you step up and you do that work as well. Share his load with him. I don't know. We can't say for sure. What we can say is that very clearly in the early church, there was in addition to the office of pastor teacher, there was the office of evangelist. And that has not only disappeared, we don't even um, discuss it or, or seem to have any awareness that it existed. Meanwhile, we've turned evangelism into a spiritual gift. Okay, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I hope prepares us to go on to part, number, uh, part two in this episode. And I hope you'll join me. Mm-hmm.